Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Mr. Miyagi, the 80s-era fictional karate master, set out to teach his disciple, he asked him to paint a fence, wax cars, and sand a huge floor using inefficient, repetitive motions that made the work difficult and tedious. Sick of repetition and exhausted, the disciple rebelled against his master. Mr. Miyagi confronted his student with a new lesson, demonstrating that seemingly pointless directives had produced knowledge in his disciple who, without realizing it, had mastered the basics of self-defense. In similar fashion, the Mathean Jesus demands obedience of his disciples. When they pray, they are to pray in a specific way, using the exact words assigned by their master day after day until the difficult and tedious burden of biblical study and repetition produces wisdom in their actions. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. For those who have not seen the 80s film, The Karate Kid, make sure to watch the YouTube clip of the teaching scene included in the show notes on our website. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 254 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the things we mentioned last week, Richard, is this Ezekielian metaphor of consuming the scroll, how the prophet takes the scroll in his mouth and consumes it so that when he opens his mouth, the Lord is able to control what he says. You have something similar in Isaiah with the hot coal that's put on the lips of the prophet once again, that purifies the lips of the one who speaks so that the only thing that comes out of the mouth is the word that's assigned by the Lord. In this sense, when we understand the prophetic context and the whole movement of the Old Testament, it's not surprising in Matthew that when the Lord is explaining prayer, He demonstrates a very explicit interest in controlling the words that we say when we pray. There's no interest in spontaneous prayer. It's about the control of the words that come out of our mouth, because it's not the things that a man puts into his mouth that defile him, but the things that come out of his mouth that defile him. The first part of the section that we read last time talks about how you're seen when you pray. How you're seen shouldn't have anything to do with prayer, because prayer is supposed to be a sound, not a sight. But what you're saying, Father, strikes me very richly, because it cannot be our word. Spontaneous prayer contradicts what Jesus is trying to teach. 
you aren't allowed to pray out of your heart. You aren't allowed to pray in the way that you feel you should pray. It is, I like the word you used, Father, controlling. It controls the words that come out, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel especially. The only words that are allowed to come out of your mouth are pure words in the image of Isaiah, but the very words that God himself wrote, God controls not the message, God controls the words themselves, and you deviate from them at your peril, no matter how good it feels in your heart. When you find a statement in Scripture and you don't understand it, you still have to preach it, and you have to keep preaching it as it's written and struggling with what it says. You don't have to understand it immediately in order to preach it. You simply have to communicate it and be faithful to it and submit to it and admit when you don't understand, but still teach it as it's written. When you go through that process and you don't dismiss texts that you don't understand or are too difficult to accept, when you simply accept all of it and keep working at it, over time, through repetition and through a continuous, relentless effort to keep teaching, you begin to understand what the text says, and you begin to see how it fits into the broader system of Scripture, but that takes work. And here, Jesus is playing on that exact mechanism in the Bible. Just say these verses when you pray. Don't say anything else except these verses. And even if you don't understand them, keep saying them, and they will do what they're going to do, the way the seed in Mark produces what it's going to produce. Now, one of the things that I find powerful and striking about the Lord's Prayer is that it's still the one prayer that everyone knows. Even in horror films, <laughs> when they're in this terrible situation, even in horror films, everybody knows how to say the Lord's Prayer. It's universal. And the fact that it's universal and that everyone has it memorized means that there's hope that eventually someone will hear what the text is saying. It's very useful in that sense. In the Russian tradition, the expression they use for how we say, I know it like the back of my hand, they say, I know it like the Our Father, because this is the prayer that everybody knows. Whether you're a fan of modern pedagogy or not, Jesus is following a classical form of pedagogy, which is you study under a master and you just do what they do and repeat what they do. And then one day, maybe you'll be able to do your own thing. This is how it was for poets. If you were a poet, you had to read all the poetry and memorize all the poetry before you were allowed to write. If you were a painter, you had a master who would tell you, do this, do that, paint like this, paint like that. You'd have to copy their paintings for them just so you could learn how to paint like them before you were allowed to paint your own painting. You weren't allowed to be a blacksmith unless you'd done exactly what your master has told you to do again and again and again, exactly the way that he tells you to do it before you're allowed. This is how you do it as a baker. This is the classical way of teaching. So anyone who is not a master of scripture, meaning you studied under a master and you did everything that a master told you to, unless you're that kind of master, you have nothing to say, let alone add to what scripture is saying. 
So just keep repeating, like you said, Father, repeat it and just do these words. Keep it short, keep it sweet, keep it unoriginal, keep it uninspiring. You don't even have to understand it. Just keep repeating what is being told for you to repeat. It's absolutely okay as a teacher to misunderstand a term, to explain something incorrectly, because you can always go back and say, I made a mistake. But it's never acceptable as a teacher to deviate from the objective content that you're teaching. So this, I say also by way of encouragement to all of our listeners, to any of them who are attempting to teach in their own community, the one thing you have to be completely dedicated to is the careful recitation of the text. As long as every time you stand up to preach, you're reading the verse to the best of your ability exactly the way it's written in context. Don't proof text. As long as you're dealing with the text, it's okay to make mistakes because that's normal in any person's educational path. The way that we were talking four years ago on the podcast was useful because we stuck with the text. But we would be wasting our time if my understanding of the text, Rich, and your understanding of the text hasn't evolved over the last four years. To the extent that we listen to older episodes and recognize what we're saying, what we recognize is the text itself. This is what provides continuity. This is what provides the agenda. It's what produces life. It's the words that the Lord puts in our mouth. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. We touched on this, Richard, with spontaneous prayer, but also I think sometimes with the lengthy prayers that we use in more traditional churches. The repetitiousness and the length are things that are distracting. I mean, we used this metaphor in the last episode talking about, you know, if you're going to pray in school, do it in a closet at school. But at the same time, you aren't allowed to be there any longer than anyone would notice that you're gone. So get in, get out, get your prayer said and move. This is contrary to any church service. If you had a church service that was 10 minutes long where you didn't see anybody, everyone would say, why did I waste my time coming? The only way that we know how to do services, unfortunately, contradicts precisely what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. Well, I think the problem is that in any tradition, what people try to do with the service is make it interesting, and Scripture is very repetitious and boring in a very useful way. As Father Paul used to explain to us when we were students at seminary, the word boring means to bore into you. So Scripture repeats itself, and the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be dealing with in just another verse, is in a way a text that, like every text in Scripture, encapsulates everything and bores it into you. In the ancient Palestinian liturgical rite in the Middle East, the services revolved mostly, almost entirely, around psalmody. Now, the psalms are lengthy, and the psalms are varied, but in their length and variation, they are repetitious. They are boring, specific teachings into you over and over again. So when you make lengthy prayers or beautiful services in order to make them interesting and entertaining, 
anytime you're filling your service with something other than the scroll that the Lord put in the mouth of the prophet, you are filling your service with meaningless words. I myself favor the mentality of the early Palestinian rite where you went to church and read Psalms, and we still have that in our monastic tradition, Richard. For me, the best part of Orthros and the best part of Vespers and the best part of the liturgy, the best parts are the psalmody and the readings because they are useful and edifying. So don't confuse this critique of many words as a general critique. Nothing in Scripture is general. The many vain words are the many vain words of human beings, which are vain, cheap words. I love this Greek word that's used, polylogia. I love the sound of it, and I love the thought of it. Just many words. They think because of many words they'll be heard. Now, one way that people try to wiggle their way out of this, just like people put so much effort into wiggling out of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been talking about it this entire time, is they say, oh, no, 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 it's not meaningless repetition. What I'm repeating is meaningful because it's coming from my heart. Their judge on whether it's meaningful or not is their intention. Whereas, you know, as you and I have talked at length, polylogia, the prophets are not talking about whether your words are meaningful, meaning you really feel them, but whether there is a real action associated with them. So they think that by pronouncing words in Matthew 6, they're going to be heard. It has nothing to do with the words that you're saying, because those words were put in you by God anyway. When you read Psalm 51 or Psalm 104 or any of these texts in the Old Testament, irrespective of the length, not one word inscribed on the page lacks purpose, not one word lacks function relative to the rest of the scriptural tradition. So you can't refer to a lengthy biblical text as being too wordy, because you can't find a word on the page that can't teach you how to live. But when people make services beautiful, when people create human words to fill the hour or to fill the half hour, however long your church services are, to fill that time in such a way to make people feel interested and welcome and engaged, those are empty words. Those might be less than the length of the psalm, but even in their brevity for their entertainment value or their attractiveness to the average person, even in their supposed brevity, they're already too many words because they lack content. So you have to think about this idea of many words in a very functional sense. It's a very nice way of saying most of what you talk about is nonsense because it's human, cheap, vain talk. So let's fill the time with words, with a dabar, which is a very important concept in Hebrew, Richard, the idea of the word being the matter at hand, something that has substance. A dabar isn't empty. It has substance. It has material impact. So the words of Scripture have that impact. The words of men do not. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Just a moment ago, it said you're not allowed to have vain repetitions. You're not allowed to stammer your prayers over and over again. And then here, 
you're not even allowed to ask for things. A vain repetition is saying what you need. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So we already know that any prayer that you pray that says what you need is a vain repetition. And that's why it's wonderful to read the Psalms rather than come up with a prayer from your own heart, because the one from your own heart will by nature be vain repetition, because it's about what you need and it's about your idea, whereas the Psalm is the Word of God. Just stick with that and you'll be okay. People talk all the time about the power of prayer. I think that discussion is misplaced and once again, vain talk. I prefer as a corrective to speak about the value of prayer. The value of prayer is that it conforms your mind when it's the Lord's Prayer. It conforms your mind to the biblical instruction, which teaches you to accept the will of God. The will of God is the will of God. So when you pray to change the will of God and then use this modern expression where you laud the power of prayer, you are boasting in your rejection of the will of God. That's what vain prayer is. The correct prayer says, whatever happens, I submit to the will of the Father. It's the Father who knows what I need. I don't need to ask. If I ask, it means I'm not trusting his headship. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He is seated on the throne in the heavens, Richard, beyond our reach, and his name is sacred. Do not mess with the name. The best way to think of the name, and we've talked about this on the Tuesday show, is it's a name of renown. When you hear that name, you recognize it, and you honor it, and you don't mess with it. It's like a family name. I explain to my children, our family name means something, and then I tell them the story of my father. So you had better respect the name because it shows respect to the sacrifice your grandfather made so that you could have a life here in this country. The name has value. In this case, Jesus is establishing without question the clear, impenetrable headship of his father as someone not to be messed with. You pray that his name be sanctified, that it be holy, and the one who is in the heavens remained glorified and that purity remains with him and that there's nothing that we do in the way that we would contradict his will that would sully that name. And so we have to understand this as an imperative towards us, not just as a way of saying, God, you're so awesome, which is not what this is saying. It's not saying, God, you're awesome. What it's saying is, let your name be sanctified. And if I accept the gracious gift that may be given to me to be the child of God, I have a duty and a responsibility to fill that word, as you said before, with something of substance and not vain talk. Because you are referring to the one who sits on the throne, whose throne is in the heavens and whose footstool is the earth. This one, who is the father of Jesus and the creator of the heavens of the earth, His name is to be known, 
to be feared and respected, and we are now daring to call him our father. There are implications for that statement, because that means suddenly you are accountable to everyone else as a brother or a sister. So when Jesus establishes his father as the head, he is establishing a household that is inclusive of everyone. If God is your father, if you are claimed by his name and his household, as you explained, Richard, then this is how you have to conduct yourself. So it's very important. And please, once again, do not fall into this ridiculous, silly trap of explaining how really when you say father, you're expressing familiarity and God is our daddy and all of this nonsense that people say all the time because they misread Galatians. It's nonsense. If you think that the one whose throne is in the heavens and whose footstool is the earth is your daddy from the American Express commercial, then you're not hearing scripture. You're making up your own theology. In linking this verse with a previous verse about the vain repetition, you mentioned the power of prayer that people talk about. When people talk about the power of prayer, they mean that they can somehow influence God to make him do something in the world. This is hocus pocus in the etymological sense of this word. Hocus pocus comes from the Latin hoc est corpus meus, which means this is my body, which is the words of institution said in the liturgy. But here's the problem. When Jesus spoke those words in Scripture, this is my body, it's not so you could perform a trick in order to get bread to turn into something. It's so that you would understand when you are eating that which God provides, this is what joins you with his son. In the same way, this can't be done in vain. If you are joined with God's son, and if you, as it says in this prayer, claim God as your father, you have a duty then to follow his will. So hocus pocus is not about making the world change to fit the way that you want it to be. The sacrifice of Jesus is for you to fill the teaching that comes from the Father with something of substance. Jesus filled that word with the substance of his own life. This is the duty of anyone who dares to call on God as his Father. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, it's the expanse of his dominion. The whole prayer is about the hegemony of the Father of Jesus. And here in verse 10, we hear now the purpose of this prayer, which is to teach us, as I said earlier, to submit to the will of God. And the will of God is whatever God wills, period. And if you want to know what he wills, you don't have to reflect and search and navel-gaze the way that people talk all the time about trying to discern the will of God. What are you talking about? If you want to know what you're supposed to do, read Scripture. If something happens in the world, it's because God willed it. It's not rocket science. We make it into rocket science because sometimes really horrible things happen from our perspective. And then we try to figure out and justify and theologize, but it's a lost cause. It's vain words, vain talk. It's wasted time. Because what happens, happens. It's the will of God. And what must be done is encoded in Scripture, so we must do it. What else is there to talk about? 
The rest is vanity, human words. That's the key point here, Richard. The authority of the Father who is enthroned in the heavens and who has dominion over both the heavens and the earth. His authority is given so that we are empowered to act according to his instruction and to submit to his will in daily life. Sadly, people are spending time trying to figure out what God's will is in their life. How does one make his will come to pass? Let me discern, let me go on a retreat, let me figure out. When in fact, it's painfully clear, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what does that actually look like? It looks like the crucifixion. It's pretty simple. What does God want from you? Get ready to be crucified. Okay, let's go. There is no discernment there. Just go and sacrifice your life and make something happen. According to this word, God spelled out his will. It's there. Read it and then go and do it. Fill it with something of substance as you live your life. That's the only way to make the will happen is to do what the prophets and the law tell you to do. That's how you make his will be done on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And here, the word bread refers to the teaching. You are being fed with the instruction. Teach us to accept life as the Father wills life for us, the good and the bad. Teach us to submit in humility. And as we submit to whatever we're confronted with, which is the will of the Father, feed us, sustain us with the bread of the instruction so that we know how to behave every day. We are saying this not so that God does something. God already knows. And I like it in Hosea, where God was providing the people the wheat, the wine, and the oil all the time. It's just that they thought Baal was giving it to them. This is the point, is that God is going to give you what you need. But you have to recognize it as coming from God. That's the actual fight. That's the actual task at hand, is being able to recognize that this comes from the hand of God. This does not come from your hand. And that's why the teaching and the bread come together so nicely, because it's the bread that comes, but it's only the teaching that tells you that it's not from your hard work or the work of some other god, Baal, or the heavens or the rain or whatever. It is God and God's will that allows that to come to you. And in verse 12, Richard, we get a sampling of what that daily bread is for us. It's the Matthean warning that if you judge, you will be judged, and if you don't show mercy, mercy will not be shown to you. That is the daily bread. Remember that if you recognize that you are to be perfect, but also see, as Jesus taught us, that we can't be perfect, then you realize that you're in need of forgiveness. That is the Matthean sledgehammer. I'm borrowing from the Mark and metaphor of the hammer. That's the Matthean hammer in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So here we are asking God to do what he promised in the content of scripture to fulfill the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins the forgiveness of debts in this case in a very specific sense, what is owed. But remember, if you've read Matthew 5, you know it's a debt that you can't repay. So you're asking for forgiveness of that debt 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there are different renderings and different Greek manuscripts. In the translation opted for here in the New American Standard Bible, verse 12 is assuming that before you would dare approach the throne of the Father to ask him to fulfill what is written in Scripture, which is the promise of forgiveness, you yourself had better have already forgiven those who have offended you or who owe you. That's ominous. The conditionality that's assumed in this prayer is ominous, as you said, Father, because it depends on us forgiving others. Now, here again, everyone always tries to wriggle out. Oh, well, you know, I never hold a grudge against anybody. I never think any evil against anybody, you know, and that gets you out of being a murderer in chapter five. I have all the best intentions in my heart. This is not how this verse plays out. Because anyone who owes you anything, you have to allow them not to owe you anything. People think forgiveness is if you've done something mean, then I don't want to do something mean back to you. No, it means if anybody owes you something, assume they owe you nothing. This is a huge difference because everyone at work assumes their boss owes them something. And everybody in their family believes their spouse owes them something. And everyone believes with their parents that their parents owe them something. This is what is wicked. Because no one owes you anything. Jesus did not assume that anyone owed him anything. He said, matter of fact, someone at this table is going to betray me. And sorry for them. He was not allowed to extract loyalty from any one of his followers. When they left him, they left him. Nobody owed him anything. Of course they owed him something. They were his students, and he taught them. They owe their life. Verse 12 is reminiscent of the admonition against bringing an offering in Matthew when you have something against your brother, which, of course, is taken from the admonition in Hosea that the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. That's why, Richard, I opt for the manuscript that the New American Standard Bible favors here, which assumes that before you go to ask for something, you will have done what the commandment requires of you. So that puts a ton of pressure on the one praying. You know, this expression that someone has a come-to-Jesus moment. According to the Lord's Prayer, there is no come-to-Jesus moment. No way. You better solve your little breakdown before you pray, or your prayer will be invalidated in Matthew. And that's why you can't play the game of the father of Jesus being your daddy, because it doesn't work as a text anymore. The whole text hinges upon the unapproachable, untouchable, impenetrable power and authority and dominion of the father of Jesus. Because if you're not trembling in verse 12, there is no verse 12. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, in verse 13, there is a famous explanation that is well known in Father Paul's work. He talks about the Greek word pirosmos as referring to the time of the test, the time of the judgment. Again, 
the father of Jesus is not your daddy. He is your father. And there is a difference because it's about authority and instruction and rearing and testing. There will be a day of judgment. You will be assessed as to how well you accepted his will and how well you acted upon the instruction given in the daily bread. And you will be assessed as to whether or not you approached him in prayer only after having forgiven others. And now in verse 13, you are asking that the day of that test be delayed as long as possible. And the evil that you want to be delivered from might be the evil that comes in the judgment against you. Remember again and again that things you perceive as evil as a human being are the will of God. Many manuscripts don't have this section, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It ends with deliver us from evil. You know, is this something that maybe was added later on? It is interesting because it fits in with verses 11 and 12 about giving us this daily bread and forgiving us as we forgive others. The one who provides and the one who forgives fits well with the one who is in possession of the kingdom, power, and glory. So I can see how they fit, but it seems like maybe that was added later, which isn't necessarily a problem. Some manuscripts go one way and some manuscripts go the other way. Another thing that's important about this is, again, we have this word of evil, and this word evil has been popping up multiple times. Whether we're the evil ones or whether we're confronted with evil, and here we're asking God to keep us from evil. This evil is always the evil of the human will. We're not allowed not just to succumb to evil, we're not even allowed to pay evil any mind because we have to remain steadfast in God's will no matter what. But if we are confronted with evil, the problem is that this can be a stumbling block. So we have to keep walking the path, no matter what. So we pray that God removes the stumbling blocks out of our way so we can keep walking more easily. God may or may not remove the stumbling block, and you may fall. You may break your leg, and you may have to stop walking for a while. But we pray that God gives us every ability needed so that we can continue to walk this path. This is what it means to keep us from evil. And please, like you said, Father, don't test us. If I have to take the test now, you're only going to find out how woefully unprepared I am to be tested if the measure of the test is how well am I following the will. Because I'm not. The only one who passed this test is Jesus. And lest you have any lack of clarity or uncertainty about what the content of the test contained in the Lord's Prayer is, Matthew just wanted to say it for you one more time. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Of any of the notions that come in this passage, the one that Jesus has to hit on for two more verses is forgiving the debts of others. Nobody owes you anything. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Have a great week. Thank you, Father. You too. You've just 
heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.